The book of Hebrews, we're in chapter 2 now. Uh, we've been three weeks. This is our fourth week in Hebrews. The, the, the main point of the book of Hebrews is to elevate Jesus Christ higher and higher. We don't know exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews, at least from a human perspective. Some think it was Paul. Others think perhaps it was Luke or Apollos or somebody that Paul had rubbed shoulders with and influenced. But one thing we know for sure is that the divine author is the Holy Spirit. God is the divine author of the book of Hebrews. And so he is the one above any human author who would be speaking through these words. And so we should perk up and listen to what he has to say. If you're ever wondering what God is saying to you, don't, go into a, don't necessarily go into a dark closet and listen for some voice to come out of the ceiling or out of thin air. Open your Bibles. God speaks powerfully, and we know that he's speaking to us here. And so... These, uh, these Christians that this letter was ori- originally written to, the Holy Spirit, God himself, cared for them. And so he wanted to speak a message to them about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. These believers were being persecuted. Uh, we don't know all that they were experiencing, but we do know some for sure. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says that some of them are being put in jail, presumably for their faith in Christ. And others, because they identified with those put in jail, were having their properties ransacked and looted. Now imagine if we were here today, if two families from here were put in jail, okay? Because of their faith in Jesus, their outspoken witness of Christ, they were put in jail. And then three or four or five other families, hopefully all of us, but at least a few, publicly identified with them and went and visited them and went and brought them meals and took care of their yard while they were in jail or their home and so forth. And one of these families, after visiting their friends in jail, upon coming home, they get closer to their house and they see stuff strewn all over the yard. And as they get closer, they see the front door wide open and windows broken out. And graffiti, not very nice things, painted on the front of their house. And as they went inside, it looked like their house had just been torn to pieces, utterly looted and ransacked. That's what these believers had experienced. That's what they had experienced. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm guessing they begin to wonder, is this worth it? Is this worth it? I mean, wouldn't it be easier for our family if we just, you know, kind of distance ourselves, even just a little bit from Jesus or from the church or from this Christian community? We'd have more friends if we did this. We would have more financial opportunities, perhaps. We'd fit in better with our neighbors and coworkers and so forth. And these believers began to drift. They began to drift. This is what was talked about in last week's text. They began to drift from the gospel. They began to drift from the Lord himself. They began to neglect this great salvation that had been accomplished for them. And this is why verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2 is such a stiff warning. Last last week's text, verses 1 to 4, say that, that we need to be very careful to pay attention to the gospel, to this great salvation that we have received in Christ. And the reason he gives is because if under the Old Testament, the Israelites, 
who received a message from the hands of angels. Deuteronomy seems to imply that angels brought the message to Moses and he brought it to the people of Israel. If they disobeyed and received a just retribution, they were punished justly by God. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And you get, see, we don't, we're not suffering like these believers were. We, we go through hardships and difficulties, no doubt. But drifting is an issue for all of us. Do you, you know how you drift, don't you? You just don't do anything. Right? You just float in the water and you drift. Drifting takes no effort at all, and that's the problem. For us, probably more than them, you know how you neglect something, right? Is you just kind of are careless with it. You forget about it. And so they were neglecting. They had drifted away from Christ. Drifting is what just happens when you're not careful, when you are careless, if you're not vigilant. And that's why there's commands all throughout the Bible, like Proverbs 4.23, which says, Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the issues of life. Drifting begins in the heart. That was last week's text. That was last week's warning. It was a clear warning. And I just want to reiterate it at the beginning here. This is a clear warning. Don't drift from what you've heard. Don't drift from the gospel. Don't drift from a, such a glorious Savior. Last week's text was a warning. Well, these verses are kind of the other side of the warning. Okay? These verses are meant to help us be anchored so that we don't drift. Right? The warning to not drift, okay, what do we do? Well, we anchor ourselves in something. That's what, that's what these verses seek to do. Here we see that Jesus is the perfect Savior, and we see what his great salvation includes. He is a perfect Savior. For those who trust in Jesus Christ, at the end of the day, you will find him to be perfect in his saving work, lacking in Nothing, not deficient in anything in his saving power and sufficiency. Jesus is a perfect savior. And these verses show us five facets of his saving work, which all point to the perfection of Christ himself. And remember, it's meant to help us to not drift. And I just want to reiterate there's always a temptation to drift. There's a temptation to drift. Especially, I would say, especially when things seem to be going really well. There's a temptation to drift. So let me mention these five facets of Christ's saving work that point to our perfect Savior. And we're just going to unpack them one at a time. First, Jesus is our perfect Savior. He is a substitute who died for us. He is the founder of our salvation who has gone before us. That's two. Number three, he is a brother who gathers a family to himself. Number four, he is a present savior in our midst. And number five, he is a savior who restores us for a future of reigning and ruling with him. Let's just go through these one at a time. First, Jesus, our perfect savior, is our substitute. 
He is our representative. He took our place. Verse 9 says, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's first see who Jesus is the substitute for. We see here the word everyone is used. Now, there are two ways for us to to use the word everyone, and everyone in this room uses the word everyone in these two ways, right? You can use the word everyone to speak of every person exhaustively who's ever lived past, present, and future, right? If I say everyone is made in the image of God, I'm, I'm saying everyone without distinction, no doubt. Does that make sense? But we also use the word everyone to speak of everyone in a particular group that we're addressing. And we all do this. I'm sitting around the dinner table with my kids and dinner's done. It was amazing, but we're going to get ice cream afterwards. I say, all right, kids, everyone in the car. Who am I talking to? Not everyone in the world. Not everyone in Ankeny. Not everyone in my neighborhood. Everyone of my kids. Everyone around the table. Let's get in the car. We're going to get ice cream. And we do this. That's what we do. I don't believe the author is saying that Jesus tasted death for everyone who has ever lived or lives now or will live in the future. Rather, he is saying that everyone who has or ever will trust in Christ, he tasted death for them. He tasted death for them. I think the context makes this very clear. Everyone in this context includes the many sons that he brings to glory, right? Everyone, that's verse 10. Everyone means those who are sanctified in verse 11. Everyone means those who are called his brothers in verses 11 and 12. And everyone includes all of those who are called the children of God. Jesus tasted death for them. Jesus tasted death for his people. Jesus tasted death. Let me boil it down for you and I. If you are in Christ by faith, this, this is really important. If you are in Christ by faith, Jesus tasted death for you. For you. He tasted your death. Now, what does it mean that he tasted death? Tasted is a Hebrew metaphor that does not mean to sample, all right? When I go to Costco, I make a beeline for the samples, all right? And sometimes if there's a really good sample, I'll take one, I'll go around that aisle, I'll come back again, I'll get some groceries, I'll come back again later, right? Because they're little samples, right? It's a taste test. Jesus didn't taste death for us like that, like a little sample of it. It means that he fully partook of death. Jesus fully partook of death for his people. And the word for here is a massive word. So important. Karl Barth, who had some really strange things to say, but said some good things. He said the most important word in the New Testament, probably hyperbolically said this, but he said the most important word in the New Testament is the word translated for here. Because it means in the place of, or on behalf of. In other words, Jesus tasted death in the place of you. On behalf of you. And that is 
That is amazing. That is glorious. Here's why that's such a big deal, okay? Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sins shall die. Anyone here sin? One guy, okay. Two of us, all right. Two of us here sin, okay. The soul that sins shall die. I'm just assuming everyone's, yep, yep, okay. The soul that sins shall die. You have a death sentence on you. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. A wage. It's what you deserve. It's what you earn because of what you've done. The wages of sin is death. And not just physical death, that's certainly included, but spiritual death, or what I think John 3.16 refers to as eternal perishing. Eternal, not eternal life, but perishing eternally. You and I have sinned. And prior to believing in Jesus, we were condemned with a sentence of death hung around our neck. The covenant curse of death had been pronounced over us. But Jesus, our substitute, took our place. I love the old song, How Deep the Father's Love. It says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It was my sin that held Jesus to the cross because he died my death. He took my place. He died the death I deserve. He drank the cup of death and curse and the wrath of God. That was reserved for me and for you. I don't know if you guys understand this, but that is like, that is like the big problem that salvation deals with, right? You and I were under the judgment of God. Almighty, holy, righteous, good, gracious God. And Jesus took it for us. Here's how an old hymn puts it. Death and curse were in our cup. O Christ, it was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop, tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up. And now blessings are draught for me. And so in a very real sense, in a very real sense, because our substitute tasted death for us, we will never die. We will never die. Of course, these bodies are going to waste away, right? We, they are wasting away, and they will. And this is not negative talk. This is just what the Bible says. Okay, right? Our bodies are wasting away. Our inner man's being renewed day by day. But these, these bodies, these shells are wasting away. But when we leave our bodies, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, if we're away from our body, we are at home with the Lord. If we leave our body, we're at home with the Lord. And that's the verse that came to mind when, when I heard Marcy's dad died this week. I sent her a text. I said, he is away from the body, but he is at home with the Lord. He is at home with the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus tasted death for us. Jesus Christ, our perfect Savior, died the death we deserve 
bearing God's wrath and curse because of our sins. And since Christ is our substitute, there is a glorious swap. Here's what happens. He took what I deserved. And he astound, excuse me, we astoundingly, by his grace alone, get what he deserves. Right? If we got what we, could, what we deserve, the wages of sin is death. We get grace. We get eternal life. We get forgiveness. We get right standing with God. We get to know God as our Father. All of these things. And I wonder if there's anyone here who has ever, just, just even the idea of dying is terrifying for you. And we live in a culture where we, we, we do things and we, to make ourselves look a certain way so we don't age, at least our faces don't, our bodies do, of course. Um, it's like we're trying to escape death. Why? Because death is this ominous enemy. For believers, for Christians, for those who are in Christ, for those, those for whom Christ tasted death, don't you know that you will never die? That you will never die? Here's what Jesus said in John eight fifty one. Truly, truly, I say to you, when he says truly, truly, it's like, listen up, okay? Extra important here. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. John eleven twenty five and 26, the one who believes in Christ and lives shall never die. Because he took our place as our substitute and tasted death for us. What a savior. What a savior. Number two, Jesus is the founder of our salvation who has gone before us. Verse 10 says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus is the founder of our salvation. Now, the word founder of our, the word founder literally means he's the captain or the pioneer of our salvation. He's the one who blazes the trail that we can follow him on. The word founder, it says the Greek word is archegos. It's made up of two words, arche, from where we get, it means like chief. It's where we get the word uh, the, the prefix for archangel, right? Arche, he's the chief, captain, and ago, which means to, to go before. He is the chief who has gone before. Jesus is our captain. He is our great and perfect captain. He is the pioneer of our salvation. He has blazed a trail. Here's what this word always means whenever it's used. It, it always means somebody who does something that somebody else can enter into. Jesus has done something. He has blazed a trail and we, by faith, by his grace alone, can enter into it. He is the pioneer or the captain of our salvation. And by faith, we can enter into the trail that he's blazed. Now, the question is, where is he leading where does our pioneer lead us? Right? What's the destination? 
where does he blaze a trail to? Well, let, let's follow what the author says because he makes it very clear. All right? I want you to see it in the text. I don't want you to just take my word for it. Verse 10 says that it was fitting that God should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Now, when it says that Jesus was made perfect through suffering, it does not mean that he was deficient in any way, that he was morally deficient or anything like that. It means that through suffering, Jesus was made the perfect founder of our salvation. He was perfectly fitted to take us to the destination that he's leading us to. So again, where is he taking us? Verse 10 says, he is bringing many sons to glory. That's where he's taking us, to glory. He's bringing many sons to glory. That's the end goal. But verse 10, I think, is the key to help fill in what does glory mean? What does that that mean? Verse 10 says, for or because he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin or all have one father. They have one father. Jesus is the one who sanctifies And we are the ones that are being sanctified by Jesus Christ. And we have one Father. Here's where the pioneer, Jesus Christ, has blazed the trail to. Here's the destination. The Father. God. God. Not glory in some nebulous, abstract way, but we get to be with God. For all of eternity. 1 Peter 3, 18 says, This is the good news that the righteous one died for unrighteous people in order to bring us to God. That's where he takes us. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to glory. Yes, but what does that mean? To heaven? Kind of, but what does that mean? No, no one comes to the Father. But through me, Jesus brings us to God. He opens the way to God. That's one of the big themes in the book of Hebrews is that he opens the way into the presence of a God rather than a God who is frowning at us and judges us, a God who smiles at us and welcomes us. Matthew 27 Verse 51, it says, Jesus was hanging on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? He was tasting death for us. Why have you forsaken me? And then he cried out one more time and yielded up his spirit and he was dead. And as soon as that happened, something wonderful happened in the city of Jerusalem, in the temple. You guys know what happened? The veil was torn. The veil was torn from top to bottom. No human being could do that, plus his really thick veil. No human being could do that. It was Christ who did it, signifying a new way to come before God, to know God. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 20. Two says this, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places or enter into God's presence by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. 
And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let, listen to this, let us draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 says that Jesus is a forerunner who has entered into the presence of God on our behalf. He has blazed the trail to God, and by faith in him, we can enter into it and know God as our Father and draw near to God in his glorious presence. He has cleared the way by which we draw near to God. He is a perfect Savior, isn't he? Any deficiency? None. It's perfect. Number three, Jesus is a brother who gathers a family to himself. There's tons of familial language in these verses. And the point is clear. Jesus is filling the Father's house with many sons and daughters. He's filling the Father's house with many brothers and sisters for him. Jesus being the big brother, filling his Father's house with many brothers and sisters. Listen to, listen to just this litany of things these verses say. Verse 10 says, The Father through Jesus is bringing many sons. Ladies, don't be offended by that. It's not a sexist thing. Many sons and daughters to glory. Okay? Uh, Verse 11 says, He who sanctifies Jesus and those who are sanctified, us, have the same Father. Right? Have the same Father. In other words, we're brothers with Jesus. Of course, Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. You and I are adopted into God's family because we're born again by the Spirit into his family. Verse 12 is Jesus speaking, quoting Psalm 22, and he says this, I will tell of your name, Father, to my brothers. My brothers and sisters. I'm going to declare your name, Father, to my brothers and sisters. I'm going to tell them all about you. I'm going to let them know how amazing you are. And verse 13 says, and this is again Jesus speaking, quoting Isaiah 8.18, I and the children God has given to me. So Jesus has come to gather a family to himself and to fill the Father's house. Isn't that amazing? He's gathering brothers and sisters to himself. But there's one phrase that speaks of this that this week hit me like a cool mountain, rocky mountain breeze. I mean, just was like, whoa, that felt so sweet. And I think it's because it emphatically highlights grace. And it's verse 11 where Jesus says, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He knows all about you. You can't hide anything from him. (laughs) Amen. You can't hide a single thing. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your temptations. He knows your battle with sin. He knows all of it. He knows your doubts. He knows your fears. He knows all your struggles. He knows it all. He knows how you've, you know, turned away from him at times. He knows all of it. You can't hide a thing from him. You can put on a good front when you come to church, but Jesus knows you through and through. And he's not ashamed to call you brother or sister. That's really encouraging to me. 
He's not like, uh, you know, when my name's mentioned in heaven, is that your brother, Jesus? He doesn't kind of blush and, oh, geez. Yeah, it's my brother. Or is Julie, is that, Julie, is that your sister? Yeah, doggone it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure why we did this, but no, he's not ashamed at all. He is thrilled to have you as a brother or sister. He's thrilled to bring you into the fathers. And, and lest you think, lest you get puffed up in yourself, this is by his grace. If you know yourself, it's by grace. And it's good that it's by grace. Right? It keeps us humble and happy, and it keeps him getting all the attention. It's by grace. He is not ashamed to call them brothers, to call you a brother, to call you a sister. Even though you have very, very clearly not arrived at perfection yet. And praise God that Jesus is the one who's sanctifying brothers and sisters in order that we may look just like him someday. And we will someday look just like him. Romans 8.29 says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. That's where God's taking us, to look just like Christ. But in the meantime... He's not ashamed of you. What a savior. What a savior. Number four, Jesus is a present savior in our midst. Verse 12 says this, quoting Psalm 22, verse 22. Jesus, our perfect savior says, now David, of course, originally wrote it, but it's being applied to Jesus. Jesus says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. He's, of course, talking to the Father. In the midst of the congregation, Father, I will sing your praise. In the Old Testament, the congregation was the gathered people of Israel to worship. Right? When God came to Moses, he said, Go to, go to Pharaoh and tell him, Let my people go that they may come out and worship me. That the congregation may come out and worship me. The Greek word that's translated congregation here is the word ekklesia, from which we get the word we know very well, church. The church is the people of Christ who gather together to draw near to God and worship. That's what the church is. We, we gather together, two or three or 60 or 100 or 1,000. We gather together not just to kind of do social things. I mean, that's, that's good too. But we gather together to draw near to God in worship. And when we gather together in the name of Jesus and draw near to God together, there's something pretty big happening in the unseen realm. We don't see it with these eyes, but maybe God can help us to see it more clearly with the eyes of faith from this morning. Jesus is in our midst. Jesus Christ is here among us. Not, in, not just in some abstract notional way. Not like, oh, I, I think I kind of feel something. I, my, my, the hairs on my arm are sticking up or something like that. I mean, not, not just like that, okay? Jesus is here doing something. 
And notice what Jesus is doing. It says in the midst of the congregation, Jesus says, I will sing your praise. In the midst of the church, Jesus is here among us singing. Do you see that? Do you see that? Jesus is here among us singing. He's singing praises to God. He is singing praises to the Father. Now, I love our worship team. I praise God for our worship team. I do. Evan, Luke, Alyssa, Amanda, Jenny, and all the rest that help serve in that way. I love our worship leaders. I love when Luke leads worship. I love when Alyssa leads worship. But could you imagine how things would shift here? Perhaps. If we gathered together on Sunday morning and we knew because the word says so, Jesus is going to be here. And he's going to be leading our praises to God. He's going to be in our midst, singing with us, leading our praises, and leading us to bring our offering, our sacrifice of praise to God at his throne. When I saw this verse this week, I mean, honestly, I I felt like Jacob. I felt like Jacob. You know, Jacob in the wilderness, Genesis 28. He's laying his head or he's laying down, he's sleeping, he has this dream, he sees this ladder that that ascends up into heaven, he sees angels ascending and descending, and he wakes up and says this, my goodness, God is in this place, and I didn't even know it. And then he says this, how awesome is this place? Not awesome like, you know, not awesome like teenagers say, that was awesome. Awesome like, wow, awe-inspiring. Glorious, holy. And if we came together in Christ's name, in faith, believing that Christ was here among us, in our midst, not to give us goosebumps, but to lead our praise to God. Right? So, so, so sometimes we think that worship is like priming the prompt to get God to come. He's here. Jesus cares more about worship. He's more zealous for the worship of God than the most zealous person in this room. He's here. Jesus leads the course of praise to God the Father. He loves the glory of the Father. John Calvin, commenting on this verse, said this, This teaching is the very strongest encouragement to us to bring yet more fervent zeal to to the praise of God. When we hear that Christ leads our praise and is the chief conductor of our hymns. Amen. He is a present savior in our midst, leading our praise to God. What a savior. What a savior. Number five, Jesus is a perfect savior who restores us for future reigning or dominion or ruling with him. Verses 5 to 9 unpack this for us. God, had, God destined man to rule the earth as, a, as his deputy in the beginning. Right? He said to Adam, Take, right, tend the garden. Rule this garden. But Adam relinquished this when he sinned, and through his sin, all mankind was, has been utterly ruined by sin and by death. 
But Christ has earned the right for us to reign and rule the world to come. And that's what verse 5 says. Not this world, the world to come. Right? Verse 5 says, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Right? The, the new world when Christ returns. Through Jesus' death and subsequent re- resurrection and exaltation, he has earned the right for us to reign with him. I think this is what's drawn out in verses 5 to 9. Here's what it says. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are now speaking. It has been testified somewhere. And then he quotes Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now the author stops there, verse 8, and verse, goes on in verse 9. So he stops quoting Psalm chapter 8 and goes on in, in verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. And he's, now stop right there. When we look at the universe today, planet Earth, do we see everything under man's feet? Far from it, right? I mean, we see disease and pestilence and natural disasters and death, and we see far from it. And the writer of Hebrews knows this, and we know this because of what he goes on to say. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to man or mankind. But we see him, Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so now Jesus is is the representative who came to repair those who were lost and ruined by sin. And he did this by suffering and dying for us. Remember we talked about Jesus, our substitute. This is one one of the outcomes of his substitutionary work for us. He died for us. He was crowned with glory and honor through his resurrection and ascension. And now in Christ, our destiny to reign and rule over creation has been reestablished in the death and resurrection of the Son of God. And it's the world to come. It's the world to come. Christ was crowned with glory and honor through his resurrection. And you and I will be crowned with glory and honor at our bodily resurrection when Christ returns and when he renews the world, right? Genesis, or Revelation 21, 22, a new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, which represents this new renewed earth. I don't know about you, but when I think about this, it's like, it's hard to conceptualize, but I thought more about it this week than I had in a while. And there's so much frustration in life, isn't there? I don't mean like, like, like I'm angry or something like that, but, but things don't work the way they're supposed to. Our bodies don't work the way they're supposed to. Things don't work out the way that we want them to. And it's because everything is infected with sin. But when Christ returns and when we are resurrected and, and raised with him, 
and given brand new bodies. And this world is resurrected as well. And everything is perfect. No longer be frustration. There will no longer be no more frustrations. Here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now, just a thought experiment, okay? When you think about eternal life, what comes to mind? As a child, and maybe even through my early adult years, I think what usually came to my mind was that eternal life would be some kind of disembodied, ghostly, never-ending church service in the clouds. <laughs> I mean, just kind of floating up there, just singing and singing perpetually forever and ever and ever and ever. <laughs> um, I mean, I love singing, okay? But that's not what eternal life is going to be. Far from it. Listen to what Revelation 22 verses 3 to 5 say, describing eternal life for believers. It says this, No longer will there be anything accursed, praise God, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, which will be more than just singing. It will be all of life. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. I can't remember if we were, Alyssa and I were talking to Silas, and I don't know if we were reading this verse or something, but he's like, you mean we won't have to sleep anymore? It's like, I know, isn't that amazing? Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And listen to this. And they will reign forever and ever. Long time. Unending. World without end. With Christ. There's something deep in us that longs for this. There really is. There's something deep in us that longs for this. We, we long for perfection. We long for a perfect world. We realize there's something in us that realizes that this broken world, there's something wrong with it. And we long for perfection. Everything that is accursed will be gone forever. This is our eternal destiny, reigning with Christ as his assistants or deputies or whatever, forever and ever. This is what Christ has accomplished, and this is what he will complete at his second coming. So, just in just quick s- summary of what we've covered, we see that we have a perfect Savior. We see all that he's done in the past. Right? He died for us in our place as our substitute, and he has blazed the trail to God the Father for us. We see what he's doing in the present. He is currently gathering people to himself to to fill God's house with sons and daughters, with brothers and sisters. And we see that Jesus is in our midst presently as as the chief worship leader. And we see what he's going to do in the future when he perfectly restores us for a future of reigning and ruling with him. So, Don't drift. Don't drift. Keep this in front of you. Anchor yourself to this Savior. Anchor yourself to to this gospel that has you covered all the way around. Anchor yourself to him. Right? Anchor yourself to him.
You can drift because things are really hard, and you can drift when things are pretty darn easy. You can drift with a smile on your face and some kind of happiness in your heart, and you can drift with a scowl on your face and anger in your heart. Pay closer attention to the message of your perfect Savior. Get it into your life so that it permeates you from the inside out. Who Jesus is. Let your life be about worshiping him and exalting him and praising him and what he has done for you in the past, what he's doing now, what he promises in the future. And you won't drift. You won't drift. You won't neglect this great salvation. You know, last week, as, as David was, was making his way through verses 1 to 4, this story just came to mind. I think it was a local story of a young mother, single mother, of, of a little toddler. I think it was maybe a daughter that she had, two or three years old, I assume. And the mother um, of this daughter just really wanted to go out and drink one night. Don't want to go to the bars. Want to go hang out with friends. And so she put her toddler to bed and went out and, and did that. Went out and got drunk. And I don't know, she somehow got arrested. I mean, I don't know if she was drunk driving or whatever. But they found out, oh my goodness, this mom has a child at home, a two-year-old. And the mother was being charged with some kind of child negligence or something like that. I bet, though, if you'd asked that mother, do you love your daughter? I mean, it was sinful, wrong. I'm not, not in any way saying it's okay at all. Do you love your daughter? Of course I do. Of course I love my daughter. I was going to go back to her. I was going to go back. But it made so much sense just to neglect her child for a little while so she could have some fun. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So great a salvation that Christ has purchased with his own blood for us. That he right now is at the right hand of God interceding for us. That he sent his spirit into our hearts to, bring, to, to apply to our lives. How should we escape if we neglect, neglect, just drift from? So great a salvation. Don't drift. Anchor yourself to this Christ. And that's one thing the church is for, right? It's to, we want to encourage ourselves. We want to stir ourselves up, but we also want to stir one another up. And that's what Hebrews says later. Let us consider how to stir one another up to faith and love and good works that we would not neglect this great salvation, but that we would live in the fullness of it until the day of our death or Christ returns. Let's pray.